Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm here with Spike's deputy editor and host of the Last Orders podcast, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the podcast, we're taking a break from Brexit and we're going to talk instead about hate crime, Melania Trump and the word of the year. Anecdotal evidence and some police figures suggest there's been a huge rise in cases of racist abuse. The UN urged Britain to take action to prevent further abuse. The month, no, the month after the Brexit vote, we had a 41% rise in race hate. Across the board, there's been a 17% rise in hate crime over the past year, with over 94,000 offences recorded. Britain is in the grip of a rising tide of hate, particularly post-Brexit. Or at least that's how the narrative goes. A record 94,098 hate incidents were recorded by police in England and Wales in the year 2017 to 2018, a rise of 17% on the last year. But other statistics tell a different story. The Home Office's crime survey shows a fall in hate crime of 40% over the last decade. So what's going on? Is hate crime actually on the rise? Or do we need to take the police statistics with a healthy dose of scepticism? I think we do need to take these with a healthy dose of scepticism because what's happened in relation to hate crime law and police practice in this area over recent years is that the definition has become a lot more broad. The types of um, crime or even non-crime, which is often contained within these definitions, is often conflated. And one thing I think is not often made clear to the public is the extent to which how subjective a lot of these crimes are. So for instance, just a couple of points, one of which is the fact that you just mentioned the term hate incidents, Mm -hmm. which is entirely new. You know, it's come in relatively recently, and that effectively refers to non-crime incidents in which it is perceived that there were some sort of prejudices motoring that. You see loads of examples of speech, of misunderstandings. You wrote this week on Spike Fraser about a pensioner who had an incident logged as a hate incident because she beeped her horn at someone. And Mm. again, there was no malintent intended there. And even when you get into hate crime, which is, again, a criminal event, a crime being committed against someone in which allegedly hostility and prejudice to a particular group, whether it's um, a race or a religion or a sexual orientation... Even there, the definitions are incredibly subjective. I can't think of another area of English law in which effectively, and this is in black and white in the College of Policing's guidance, that it is the perception of either the victim or even just someone witnessing the alleged crime or non-crime. Mm. So you get into bizarre situations, as happened a couple of years ago, where you know the then Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, makes a speech on immigration. Someone who later admitted to not actually having read it decides that it's racist, <laughs> reports it as a hate incident, and then this sits on the logs forever. It's never going to be scrubbed off. Amber Rudd will always have that alleged hate incident to her name. Now, it would be easy to kind of laugh about all of this, except for the fact that it comes at a really big cost, which is that there is whipping up a tremendous amount of fear, a tremendous amount of concern, with no basis actually in objective reality. And so while, of course, people would want to take prejudice seriously, I think we need to treat hate crime and hate incidents with a huge amount of scepticism. Even the Home Office have come out and said, do not take this 17% rise as meaning that there has been an enormous rise in, in crime. You know, they've said it's about better reporting. It's about more people willing to come forward. But there is also a compulsion to report these things. You know, police guidance from a few years ago said that it should not be seen as desirable for hate crime statistics to fall down. Now, in any other area of life, we want to see crime going down. But in Mm. this area, it's seen as an objective good that police figures rise. There's been a huge number of police stations 
tweeting. You know, have you mm. seen these kind of tweets where they say, essentially, spy on your neighbours, spy on your <laughs> friends and let us know if any of them commit a hate crime. I mean, that's pretty terrifying. No, it is, it is scary. And, and as has been said earlier, a lot of these incidents are really about neighbourly disputes and misunderstandings between strangers. So some of the examples that I compiled in my article this week on Spiked include, you know, dog poo. Uh, someone finding a dog poo on their lawn and the police treating it as a racist incident. Mm. Similar story, someone had a dog bark at them, treated as a, a hate incident. Rod Liddle, the <laughs> columnist, one of his one of his newspaper columns was treated as a hate incident because he made fun of the Welsh. You know, he basically said that the new Seven Bridge should be renamed to a really long word with no vowels and and that it, they should be grateful for anything that connects them to the first world. <laughs> but that apparently, you know, was enough to get one police chief to try and mount a prosecution against him. Thankfully, that, that failed. But there are also examples where these things do spiral out of control and people end up being prosecuted and convicted for practically nothing. So a young girl in Liverpool, 19 years old, her name is Chelsea Russell, she was convicted of posting rap lyrics on her Instagram. Now, this was in response to a young boy, a 13-year-old boy had died. I think one of his favourite songs was by this US rapper called Snapdog. Loads of people posted this quote that featured the n-word in it for some reason this one girl was targeted and the police decided to mount a prosecution against her the result of this was that she was given a community order she was slapped with a 585 pound fine she was given an ankle tag she was under curfew for eight weeks and you know this is literally just for quoting lyrics from a from a rap song I think this can have really, really dark consequences, especially when the kind of the claim that hate crimes are soaring are used for political means. So we've obviously seen this in relation to Brexit. And I remember when Brendan O'Neill revealed the fact that that incident of the murder of the Polish man, Arik Jozwik, which Remainers claimed was a Brexit hate crime, was the, you know, the evidence that people were turning into these racist monsters and that Brexiteers were going around murdering Polish people. It turned out that it was absolutely nothing of the sort. It was just a fight that had gone wrong. And, you know, you see that in relation to the kind of hunting for hate crimes Mm. everywhere. Mm. The recent discussion about the drive to make misogyny a hate crime has been really interesting because that was instituted in Nottinghamshire around about two years ago. Now, Nottinghamshire is a population of around about 810,000 people. And within that two years, there were 174 reports under this sort of misogyny as a hate crime new scheme. 73 of those were crimes, so genuine sexual harassment, harassment, all that kind of thing. And 101 were incidents. And the police were, when they were interviewed by the BBC, said, you know, well, there's nothing that can really happen when something's an incident. Uh, most of the time, it just gets logged as an incident. And if you take those numbers and boil it down, it means that 0.02% of Nottinghamshire reported a hate crime. And yet, this has inspired MPs like Mari Black and others to call for misogyny to become a hate crime across the board, across the whole of the UK. What that means is that police will be watching women's back when they walk down the street, will be under surveillance and that you can be as you said that terrifying example of the young girl slapped with an ankle tag a fine community service for wolf whistling at a woman for making sexual comments so you know yes it's you can think of these funny examples and it seems all very ridiculous but at the end of the day the whole discussion about hate crime really means that we are essentially living under a police state in which the 
you know, you can be banged up, be prosecuted for next to nothing. And that really is terrifying. Mm-hmm. As you say, Ella, it's the direction of travel that is so terrifying. It, it, it's bad enough that we are in the situation where we are, but the, actually the drive is to expand hate crime even further. So the Law Commission produced a, a report, you know, pondering whether not only to turn misogyny into a hate crime, but also misandry, hatred against men potentially hatred against the elderly, potentially hatred against goths could be turned into a hate crime. We're actually going in the wrong direction in many ways. Mm. And I think that's right. And I think the more you create these kind of victim-specific categories of crime, especially as they're so subjective, it's only natural that these things are going to spread and spread. I think the one thing that's really worth nailing um, and to make clear is, as you gestured to in your introduction, Fraser, that um, the level of kind of prosecuted or let alone convicted hate crimes has remained steady, if not has been dropping, at the very same time that reports have been soaring. And that's really at the heart of the disparity. I mean, in the wake of the Brexit vote, there was a lot of discussion about how hate crimes had um, you know, spiralled out of control, that there was this spike. Um, and yet, again, you wait a few months down the line, and when the CPS put out their report for the same amount of time, they actually found a sharp decrease in the number of religious and racial hate crimes which managed to go to court particularly after Brexit, I think it's fair to say there was a pretty concerted trawling effort. You saw Mm. websites set up allowing people to just put in these incidents online. And remember, given the fact you don't even have to be victim to one of these hate incidents or hate crimes to report them, that's naturally going to lead in that very febrile climate to loads and loads of reporting. And I think, again... The term hate crime has become so expanded it's become almost meaningless that it's almost easy to kind of just laugh at it. I mean, it's got because it's gotten so strange. But it, I come back to that point that it's become at a very, very serious cost. Because it reminds me a little bit of that um, Orwell quote in Politics in the English Language where he talks about how people in power um, using a phrase, having their own private definition of it when the public think they mean something very different. Mm. When people hear the word hate crime, they think of something very specific. They think of racially aggravated violence. They think of people daubing racist slogans on people's front door. Something very serious, Mm. exactly. And and whilst we could get into the discussion about whether hate crime as an aggravating factor is ever acceptable, as we've argued on Spikes, it often drifts into, into thought crime. But nevertheless, just taking it as it is and as people understand it, that is not what is going on. And so the consequence of all of this is that while some people are twigging that there has been this distortion, that there has been this crime panic, a lot of people, particularly in minority communities, are effectively being scared stiff for no good reason, you know, at a time in which Britain is certainly as tolerant as it ever has been. And I think that's really the danger here, is the fact that what we're looking at is a crime panic, and what crime panics have always done, whether it was the black mugger panic in the 70s and 80s or what we're looking at today, they always end up demonising one group of people and scaring another group of people stiff. And that's never, ever positive. And it just shocks me that more people on the left in particular, who previously were very good at calling out crime panics, because it's always ordinary people who end up on the sharp end of them, have so manifestly failed to do so. And if have anything, just jumped in on this crusade. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. Up next, Melania Trump. Last week, in an unprecedented move, Melania Trump publicly called on Donald Trump to fire one of his top national security officials. Normally when Melania is in the news, it's something to do with her dress sense or she's being made the butt of jokes by late night comedians. 
So, Ella, can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so really out of the blue, Melania's office, her staff, released a statement that said it is the position of the office of the First Lady that Mira Rickardell, who was formerly the Deputy National Security Advisor, no longer deserves the honour of serving in this White House. And now it transcribes that what has happened is that uh, Mira Rickardell is, as one White House staffer put it, not everyone's cup of tea. She is certainly sounds like something of a personality. And she got into a row with Melania's staff about who could be seated where on a plane on a trip to Africa. It, it kind of really boils down to that. But also there was claims that Melania believed that uh, Rickardell, who's also a bit of a loud mouth, it's alleged, was feeding stories to the press about Melania's behaviour and her spending habits. So it's just essentially a bit of a bust up and Melania's thrown her weight around and very strangely, rather than doing the normal thing that the First Lady is expected to do, which is have a quiet word in her husband's ear, she's come out and made this statement. And you might think that it doesn't sound like anything really that dramatic and it's just what naturally happens a lot of the time in relation to staff changing in the White House. But the interesting thing is the reaction to it. So lots of people have written uh, columns saying, oh, Melania shows her authority and oh, Melania isn't just the arm candy of Donald Trump. Opinion on her tends to pendulum swing. So sometimes she is the resistant saviour. She's the person who talks about the fact that child migrants shouldn't be separated from their families, who goes against her husband, who wears a pussy bow after that video that we all remember of Donald Trump came out, um, who talks about being nice online. You know, she's this secret kind of active resistance member within the White House. Other times she's a total witch who wears coats that say I don't care do you when she goes to uh, child migrants and she's the kind of evil quiet malicious <laughs> wife of Donald Trump everything it boils down to is that no one takes this woman as an individual and no one is willing to say okay she is just Melania Trump who makes her own decisions it's quite interesting to see the reaction to her people want to paint her either way and it always ends up feeling quite reductive and I think Melania was interesting because she's one of those people who really shows up some of the blind spots or the double standards of a lot of liberals in terms of talking about women in positions of power. You know, I mean, it became, especially during the campaign, almost to say anything bad about Hillary Clinton was almost akin to sexism. Mm. And yet Melania was kind of fair game, you know, from the campaign onwards. There was this long profile in The New Yorker, which just was full of kind of not so subtle jibes about that she kind of... You know, sticks to her repertoire of stock answers. She um, basically just echoes everything that her husband says. Her hobbies include Pilates and reading magazines, you know, all of this stuff, which was this really kind of nascent sort of snobbery, um, which was quite interesting. I think you can kind of compare as well the, the way in which, say, Michelle Obama is fated to um, Melania Trump. Now, of course, they're very different individuals, take very different paths in life. But whereas Michelle Obama is obviously rightly, you know, celebrated or discussed for, you know, having pulled herself up by her bootstraps, as it were, coming from the south side of Chicago to go to the Ivy League and then to become a lawyer. You know, Melania Trump didn't have an easy start in life, you know, growing up in a kind of communist apartment block in Slovenia, coming to America with not much to her name and then making a success of things. But because she's kind of like the wrong type of rich person, <laughs> because it's the somewhat more tacky and, of course, attached to Donald Trump, then it becomes fair game to talk about her, as is often been the case, as kind of airheaded, as this kind of Stepford wife, as this kind of robotic piece of arm candy to mix two metaphors. It just it's it's an interesting thing, which is of course no one in public life, certainly people who hold a fair bit of authority without being elected, as the first lady does, shouldn't be beyond 
criticism, I think the kind of double standards in there are pretty interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting the kind of expectations that are, th- are thrown on Melania Trump. As as you alluded to, Ella, you know, there's an expectation from some people that she should resist Donald Trump, despite, you know, being in this entirely unelected position. And, you know, we know that in the past that Hillary Clinton was criticised when she was first lady for being overly political, mm. for, you know, attempting to drive through, you know, healthcare reforms. And and that's understandable. Whatever you think of those those policies, you know, this person was not elected. It's also interesting in the case of Donald Trump that Ivanka has kind of become the what people describe as the de facto first lady, that he has involved his his family in, in politics in very overt ways. You have to remind yourself that even though America is, you know, the great democracy, that it does have this tendency to produce dynasties mm. following the Clinton dynasty and yeah. Bush dynasty. And perhaps we're seeing the emergence of a Trump dynasty if Ivanka and Jared are so heavily involved in the administration. And perhaps now if Melania yeah. is going to, you know, put her oar in. But it's like you can't have it both ways. So on the one hand, people are arguing, and I read uh, an article in the New York Times, is Melania going to be the person that we should pin our hopes on to be mm. the one that ousts Trump? You know, could she be the one that pushes him out? So on the one hand, they sort of believe that Melania has all this power then they spend or the kind of Trump critics spend all the rest of their time portraying her as this airhead I mean there was a huge conspiracy theory about a body double yeah. for a yeah. long time um very which, mainstream journalist yes, yeah, that, which, yeah. Which, which was saying you know that she's so incapable that they have to have a stand-in mute body double there is an article in the Telegraph which details uh, again and again and again top 10 times in which Melania couldn't speak or, or was so cowed by her husband that she couldn't even hold his hand comparing her in a very unfavorable and unfair way to Michelle Obama you know the Obamas are kissing and smooching and as this sort of robotic, oppressed woman. And after this whole thing with Mira Rickardell came out, uh, Stephen Colbert, the late night chat show host, did a skit with her. And it ended with her being a kind of mime saying, you know, let me out, let me out, which is, you know, which is it? Does this woman have enough agency to mm. topple one of the most powerful man in American politics? Or is she this enslaved wife who can't, you know, can't even speak about how she feels? Mm. I, I personally find it, incredibly shocking that feminists especially make these kind of assumptions about Melania and talk about her as this sort of battered woman uh, and abused which is the most insulting Mm. thing I mean uh, yeah like you said she's the first lady I would die to have that kind of political power it's not like she is without uh, agency it's a really really insulting view of her Mm. and I think the other thing on the double standards is that liberals want it both ways in the US insofar as they're very critical of the kind of, as you sketched out, Fraser, the kind of courtly politics of the mm. Trump White House, the fact that effectively his top advisors are all related to him, the fact that he's just brought all of these people in. Yet at the very same time, they're constantly getting very excited, if not actively calling upon the unelected parts of the government, whether it's unnamed you know, national security people writing <laughs> op-eds in the New York Times talking about how they're resisting Trump from within, or whether it's the First Lady, or as you say, Ivanka at one point was hopeful because she had this more kind of New York democratic um, background, um, as Trump does to some extent, that she would be some sort of check on the president. I think the thing that's interesting about the Trumps in general, which we've already um, touched upon, which is the fact that there is this kind of level of sort of snobbery towards them, which is kind of hard to understand for some people, because obviously they're super rich. (laughs) But in a way, they're the wrong kinds of 
rich people. That's why people really dislike them. They're not the Obama rich, the kind of, you know, the coastal law professor types. They're the kind of uncouth rich, the beauty pageant rich, <laughs> the kind of permatan rich. And there's this great quote in Fire and Fury, the, it should be said, much debunked Michael Wolff book about the Trump White House, where allegedly Trump and a friend of his are flying to Atlantic City with two Eastern European models. And then they say, what's Atlantic City like? And Trump says, it's kind of like Vegas, but for white trash. And they say, <laughs> what's white trash? He said, they're like me, but poor. <laughs> that probably isn't real, but I think that gets to the heart, really, of something which is about the Trumps and why people are so revulsed by them, is that they're the kind of wrong kind of rich people in some respects. You're listening to the Spike Podcast. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from listeners and readers like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Oxford dictionaries have named the word toxic as their word of the year. Toxic is the word that best captures the ethos, mood and preoccupations of 2018, they say. They note a 45% rise in the number of people looking it up on their website, and also how the scope of toxic as a descriptor has expanded enormously. So what does this word toxic tell us about life in 2018? Well, Joanna Williams wrote a great piece on Spike this week about this, which is the fact that if you really think about it, toxic is put before everything (laughs) nowadays, because obviously these words of the year things, sometimes they can seem a bit silly. I mean, I think a couple of years ago, 2015, it was the um, crying laughing emojis, which was named as the the word of the year. So you've got to take these things with a bit of a pinch of salt. But if, again, everything, as Joanna points out from, you know, relationships are toxic, family life are toxic, work life is toxic, keying in with a lot of the kind of me too concerns and when you really think about what that word means in terms of poisonous i think um the use of it to refer to personal relationships as well as politics speaks to an incredibly sort of fearful disdainful sort of um climate that we're living through and it was kind of interesting that even though when these things come out you kind of think ah what does that really mean when you really think about it it has been something which has crept into our discourse and been used to describe things that otherwise we would see as just the cut and thrust of politics or just normal everyday life yet now that seems to be more and more problematized it feels yeah like. yeah well the main one that gets used is toxic masculinity of course. which has become the kind of just byword for crappy men it's like it's what <laughs> feminists just talk about when they want to say that men are all men are horrible and abusers uh, and i always thought of it as the kind of thing that extremes would use but i mean it it has come into kind of just normal language people Mm. are sort of accepting it and you're right it is it's like all these words i've said this before about misogyny you know like remember how serious a word misogyny is and Mm. what it means the same with toxic it means something very extreme so uh, the idea that you could have toxic masculinity to my head immediately you know you think of a raging misogynist who is a complete woman hater and uh, is going to do everything he can to hurt women but generally gets used to describe lads at university Mm. to describe uh, football behavior to describe any kind of low-level sexual interaction these days you really have to think, why is it that these very serious words are sort of being bastardised in this way? It is interesting as well, just quickly on the kind of toxic masculinity point. Yeah. It almost feels like a kind of throwback to kind of Victorian middle class moralism. You know, it's just like, again, sort of slightly uncouth, slightly laddie behaviour is not just um, something you might turn your nose up at, but it's something disgusting and dangerous <laughs> and aberrant and poisonous in effect. And I think that the use of the word toxic in that example is kind of interesting. It's this incredibly moralising sentiment that a lot of people have to just, you know, things that we would previously often not just described as you know poor behavior but sometimes just normal behavior frankly 
I want to move on to another word of the year. So Collins Dictionary selected gammon as their nice. word of the year. So anyone got any thoughts on I've that? I've been called a gammon and I thought that it was only for men. <laughs> <laughs> Which was quite rude. I mean, this is this like loosely describes the kind of disgrunt the, the stereotype is a disgruntled, red faced old white guy mm. who usually is ranting about Brexit or some other incredibly mm. bigoted thing. Uh, <laughs> At its heart, it's very, very anti-working class. And the kind of people who've been throwing it around are some very snobby columnists who want to go in that vein of demonising Brexit voters and they just sort of push them away as, oh, you're just ga- you're just gammons, <laughs> you're just these kind of uh, lumpen, uh, big mass of idiot uh, working class people who don't have any clue of what you're talking about. You just get red face and you have a pint and you rant. Um, so that was a particularly unpleasant term, mm. actually. So my word of the year was women, but women spelt with an X. How do you pronounce that? Has anyone I, worked it out yet? This, and, and this is the thing. The fact that it is is literally unpronounceable tells you all, all you need to know about it. The fact that you can't pronounce it reveals the great lie of political correctness. You know, political correctness is always presented as this thing that is inclusive, that brings people in. But the fact that we can't even say this word out loud shows that it's exclusive. Only certain people who know the correct phrases are included in the Mm. right-thinking people who use politically correct language. The other reason I I was drawn to the word is the way that it has problematized the idea of women. You know, this word women has now become toxic in in a way. Um, To the point where they're now kind of reduced to just you know, bodily functions and or parts of their body, you know, people with cervixes, people with uteruses, womb bearers. I mean, that in itself is so obviously regressive. Well, yeah, no, so I've got some other examples of that. that. The Guardian went to describe women as menstruators. (laughs) Teen Vogue, everyone's favourite magazine, went for this beautiful construction of non-prostate owners. How does it feel to be a... <laughs> As the only non-prostate owner in the room. Well, you can't make assumptions owner. these days about that. <laughs> Don't presume. But no, the interesting thing about this, because it was the Welcome Collection who did it, uh, who used the word WIMXN. And <laughs> I have to say, this is the maybe one rare time in my life that a bit of a feminist urge is growing inside me because they didn't do it to men. Yeah. It was only yeah. about women. What is so disgusting and terrible about the word women that you have to censor it with an X? Mm. Uh, rightly, lots of women were very outraged at this saying you cannot you know so much of identity politics and political correctness is talked about you know being seen and being represented you're wiping out half the population's <laughs> word to describe themselves I think that's pretty shocking I mean in relation to these lists of words it's very interesting that lots of them and lots of the runners up are in relation to feminism mm. and women so yeah. one of the runners up that I picked was gaslighting mm which is essentially when a man convinces a woman that she's going mad when really what he's doing is being horrible to her. And when she complains, he says, oh, it's all in your head, it's all in your head. And, you know, you think, oh, how often are people using that? But uh, I'm now going to drop the name of my favourite show in the world, Love Island. When that was on this summer, um, there was a guy on it, Adam Collard, who was being quite mean to a woman rosie williams um and women's aid said to the press that he was gaslighting her which means that he was psychologically damaging her and they even called it domestic abuse so you have these terms like toxic like all the other ones that mean very serious thing gaslighting is quite a serious thing um it actually involves psychological abuse uh being thrown around about reality tv shows Mm -hmm. there was an article in the guardian that said love island normalizes emotional abuse and we call it entertainment i mean 
all these words to describe abuse against women, whether it be gaslighting, toxic masculinity. I mean, it's unsurprising that a year after Me Too, we are still talking about this crap. But it is worrying that it has got so much into the kind of lexicon that people mm. are using these words that you have to step back and think, what's going on here? Well, people have used the word uh, gaslighting to talk about politics as well. Yeah. So you'll often hear that, you know, usually usually Brexit voters have been gaslighted by Jacob Rees-Mogg and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Boris Johnson as if as if the electorate are essentially victims of some kind of domestic abuse and you know that we don't we, we can't think for ourselves and mm. we, we're just completely trapped by the these demagogues mm. and, it, and it kind of interests me as well not just what words have kind of come to the surface or been coined in the last couple of years but also how existing words or existing of these kind of phrases have been sort of quickly redefined you know there was a whole debate earlier this year about the um about the billboards put up by f- radical feminist groups saying woman definition adult human female mm. to the point where I, were they taken down there was certainly a complaint to call for them to be taken down yes um, they were yes so you had the bizarre sort of situation i also love how some of these buzz phrases like gaslighting etc the definition seems to change every day so we saw, mm. <laughs> you know the example is when um ben shapiro <laughs> challenged alexandria casio cortez the kind of um great new hope of the socialist left in america to challenge her to a debate and she said don't cat call me that was a kind of interesting one mm. last week we saw um carol cadwallader the observer's chief conspiracy theorist have a go at andrew neil because he called her a crazy cat lady and she accused him of slut shaming which, <laughs> which makes absolutely no sense cat lady uh, is the opposite of a slut exactly. surely as someone pointed out on twitter cat lady suggests that you're not getting much action rather than anything <laughs> else so it's absolutely bizarre so it's not, it's just these words just become cudgels so quickly they're not so much there to try and describe an observable phenomenon just as they are to just sort of land blows against people you dislike most of the time it feels like thank you for listening to the spike podcast if you enjoyed the show why not give us a rating a review or even a donation we'll be back next week with more and in the meantime for your daily dose of spiked go to spiked-online.com see you next week